Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Adam White. I'm a resident scholar here at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, It's my honor and pleasure to welcome you to introduce this discussion and to introduce today's featured guest. In his famous study of American democracy, Alexis de Tocqueville observed that there is almost no political question in the United States that's not resolved sooner or later into a judicial question. That line is so familiar now that it's almost cliché, but perhaps Tocqueville's insight was even more true than we thought we knew. In a new book, a leading scholar of American constitutionalism examines 1,308 cases decided by the Supreme Court from 1789 to 2018, in which the court judged the constitutionality of laws passed by Congress. This study and the conclusions that it draws are a landmark achievement in American constitutional law. The book is Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present, and its author is our guest today, Professor Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Professor Whittington, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate um, y'all having me, and I appreciate y'all uh, coming out um, early this morning for, um, for this. Um, this is a project that uh, took a long time uh, to get off the ground. Um, I initially expected it would be a relatively um, short um, piece of work, um, uh, motivated in part by the Rehnquist Court in the late 90s, um, striking down um, lots of acts of Congress. Um, and then eventually it sort of grew into being a much more complicated, uh, much more uh, difficult um, uh, book to put together, in part because I realized as I dug into it um, that I didn't know enough about um, how the court had actually exercised um, the power of, of uh, reviewing uh, congressional statutes um, over time. And I really needed to um, uh, spend more time really digging into the court's records um, in order to get more of a sense of what this actually looked like uh, in practice. Um, one interesting feature of the modern court is that everybody from the political left to the political right is a judicial activist now. Um, everybody wants the court to be exercising judicial review. There are deep disagreements about when the court ought to be exercising judicial review, which laws um, ought to be struck down. Um, but we're at a point where people both on the left and the right want laws to be struck down. They want the court um, to be out there aggressively enforcing the Constitution, um, not only against Congress, but also against um, other um, government officials. Um, that was not always true. Um, through much of American history, the political left in particular was quite critical um, of the court um, as a potential enforcer um, of constitutional rules against government officials. The populists and then the progressives um, at the late 19th century and early 20th century uh, denounced the court as illegitimate and anti-democratic. Um, and this uh, argument was um, popular on the left to think the court should not be exercising um, judicial review uh, more generally. Uh, conservatives, meantime, were very encouraging of the court and thought the court was a critical bulwark of protecting individual liberties against um, democratic forces um, in general. Eventually, the political left came around and became supportive of the court as well. It became 
uh, found their own interest in supporting the institution of judicial review and what it could do uh, for the kinds of things that they were um, concerned about. We may be at an interesting moment as to whether or not the political left remains interested um, in the court and judicial review going forward or whether or not they also make the same calculation that progressives were making in the early 20th century, um, that there's nothing in it for them um, in judicial review and they'd rather attack the court and delegitimize the court uh, rather, than, rather than hold it up. Um, but at least for several decades, we had a period in which both political left and political right wanted the court to be um, active but disagreed about um, uh, what that looked like. That reflected the fact that the court had become a very important part of the American constitutional system in general and how we actually enforce constitutional rules um, in practice. Um, and again, this was not always true, that we now think of the court as being a critically important part um, of the system of checks and balances and how we maintain constitutionalism um, over time. That was certainly not how James Madison thought about the constitutional system. For him, the court was mostly an afterthought. Um, the possibility of judicial review um, seemed uh, relatively small, though I think it was something that was anticipated by the founders and the founding uh, generation uh, more generally. Um, but for them, the court was a relatively modest player um, in the constitutional system as a whole and American politics uh, more generally. Um, but that changes. Over the course of the 19th century, the court becomes much more important and prominent. Um, even the term judicial review that for us is very familiar in the way we talk about the power of the court to strike down laws that are unconstitutional isn't coined until the turn of the 20th century. Uh, one of my predecessors at Princeton University, uh, the constitutional historian Edward Corwin, uh, was the first one to characterize this power um, to strike down laws as unconstitutional as being judicial review. Um, that was a term that stuck, but there were lots of other terms people were floating at the time. Um, to describe this power that the court was exercising. And people were starting to try to talk about it and try to find a shorthand way of talking about this power in the early 20th century precisely because of how prominent the court had become, um, how important it had become uh, within the system. And so there was a desire um, to try to make more sense of it and try to talk about it more um, than was tends to be true in the early decades um, of, Amer of the American experience. The book is really motivated by trying to figure out, in part, um, how much does the court actually constrain Congress in practice? How active has the court been um, in resisting uh, congressional encroachments um, on the Constitution um, across American history? Um, I don't focus on states, and that's an important aspect of what the U.S. Supreme Court has done through its history, is monitor the states and keep them within constitutional bounds. Um, likewise, it doesn't focus on the presidency as such and how much the court is monitoring executive branch officials um, for potential violations they might be engaging in. Instead, it's concerned with legislative power, federal legislative power, and how much um, the court is willing to push back against Congress um, as it exercises um, that power. And likewise, trying to take up this question uh, initially raised by the populace, but ultimately becomes quite an important one, of just how anti-democratic is the court? That is, to the extent to which how much does the court push back against democratic forces, against popular majorities um, in practice uh, across American history? Is it really the case um, that the court um, behaves in the kind of way that populist progressives uh, feared the court behaved in? Um, my conclusions, ultimately looking across this um, history, um, do echo conclusions that one, Brutus made in the early debates um, over the ratification of the Constitution, and secondly, Robert Dahl made, an eminent political scientist in the mid-20th century. Brutus had said, and warning um, the other anti-federalist, 
um, about whether or not to ratify the Constitution, um, that he expected the federal judicial power generally, the U.S. Supreme Court um, specifically, would tend to lean strongly in favor of the general government and would tend to expand the scope of the general government over time, and in doing so, expand the scope and power of the federal courts themselves um, over time. Brutus thought that would be a good reason to resist um, the adoption of the uh, U.S. Constitution because this would uh, be launching a system that would expand over time. And I think Brutus has basically been right. Um, The Supreme Court mostly has not been an institution that has held back Congress from growing over time, but instead has been an institution um, that is constantly um, advocating for Congress and helping encourage Congress to expand its authority um, over time. The court has mostly been a cheerleader uh, for the expansion of congressional power over time rather than a significant check um, on how Congress has exercised um, authority across American history. And likewise, Donald, writing in the mid-20th century, um, was concerned with this kind of question that the populists and progressives had raised about the idea of the court being an anti-democratic institution uh, acting on behalf of minorities. And Donald, as an empirical political scientist, was quite skeptical about the possibility of the court playing that kind of role. Um, Dahl said, um, if the court did, in fact, uphold minorities against national majorities, as both its supporters and critics often seem to believe, it would be an extremely anomalous institution from a democratic point of view. He thought it was very hard to imagine how you would construct a political institution like the court within a democratic system that would nonetheless consistently come to the defense of minorities against national political majorities uh, more generally. He did some empirical work that suggested to him um, that the court, in fact, tended not to behave that way. It tended to uh, reflect the interest of national political majorities, not necessarily the interest um, of political minorities more generally. And the book, in part, is concerned with trying to reinvestigate that question and bring more data um, to bear and trying to examine how the courts actually behaved across its history. Um, as I noted, then, ultimately, the book winds up looking at over 1,300 cases in which the court substantively evaluated the constitutionality of the application of a federal law um, in a case um, before them. Um, this is dramatically more cases than I think we uh, commonly think the court has actually exercised power of judicial review um, against Congress. We have a canonical list of cases the Congressional Research Service maintains about how often the court has struck down uh, federal laws over time. That list actually was initially developed by the same Edward Corwin who coined the term uh, judicial review. He initially uh, created that list in the early part um, of the 20th century. I think it actually misses quite a few cases. It leaves out quite a lot of how much the court has pushed back against Congress over time. Um, but that list doesn't even try to uh, identify cases in which the court has upheld um, exercises of congressional power over time. Um, and that's actually a lot of what the court has done with the power of judicial review um, over time. So I think across these 1,300 cases or so, um, only about a quarter of them result in the court um, invalidating acts of Congress and refusing to apply acts of Congress in cases in front of them uh, because of constitutional problems, um, which means three-quarters of the cases the court is saying that Congress is perfectly fine um, to exercise the power um, that they're trying to exercise um, in that case, and they turn away um, uh, litigants who are trying to argue that Congress has um, exceeded um, its constitutional um, limits. Generally, I think we underestimate um, both how early the court was exercising judicial review and also how often the court has exercised judicial review, um, specifically relative to Congress um, across uh, American history. In part, I think because we look for the wrong things in trying to think about um, judicial review, we're looking for certain telltale signs of judicial review that um, I think uh, uh, misunderstands the uh, variety of ways um, in which the court effectively exercises the power of limiting Congress 
um, under the Constitution in cases that come before it. Um, in addition, we tend to focus our attention on high-profile, politically salient cases. In the vast majority of the cases in which the court has reviewed Congress, both the ones where it's upholding laws, but also the ones where it's striking laws down, have not involved politically salient cases. They have not involved particularly important statutory provisions or particularly important statutes. They don't make the front page of the New York Times. Um, they're relatively modest um, cases involving uh, relatively small and insignificant features um, of uh, statutory schemes. And as a consequence, we tend to overlook them and, and across time, we tend to forget about um, those cases entirely, but that's actually how the court mostly exercised judicial review, and it's mostly how they built up the power of judicial review, um, is by exercising power um, in those kinds of cases. I think Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story was suggestive of a certain style in which the court exercised judicial review that's been prominent across its history, it was particularly prominent in the 19th century, um, and has led us in part, I think, to underestimate how often the court exercised judicial review. In a circuit court case, when Supreme Court justices at the time rode circuit so they would sit um, in uh, trial cases um, uh, out in the countryside as well as uh, sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court in appellate capacity. In one of those cases, Justice Story uh, wrote an opinion in a case in which there was a constitutional challenge um, to a federal law. Um, and Story notes the attitude that the court should take uh, when thinking about these kinds of constitutional um, challenges that are brought um, up about uh, federal statutes uh, in particular. Uh, he notes, whenever it becomes a duty um, to decide on the constitutionality of laws, um, sound discretion requires that the court should not lightly presume the excess of power by the legislative body, nor so construe the generality of words as to extend them beyond its lawful authority unless the conclusion be unavoidable. As little reason could there be to imagine the legislature would voluntarily transcend its constitutional authority, the language must be very clear and precise. Uh, which would impose on the court the duty of declaring the solemn act of the legislature to be void. Um, the court could never incline so to construe doubtful expressions, much less to seek uh, astutely for hidden interpretations, which might darkly lead to such results. So if courts go into the process of evaluating constitutionality laws on the assumption that Congress is not trying to violate um, the Constitution, uh, generally shouldn't be said that they are violating the Constitution, um, the court should instead um, enforce constitutional boundaries in part by reinterpreting statutes in order to avoid those constitutional conflicts. Um, and notably, this is not a, an avoidance canon. Story is not suggesting um, that the court should avoid having to resolve constitutional questions. Um, what Story is advocating is the court ought to identify where the constitutional limits are to congressional power um, and emphasize that what the litigants are asking the court to do is to apply the law in a way that would extend beyond those powers and then refuse to do so. And so insist that, in fact, the law has to be interpreted in a way that brings it within the boundaries um, of the Constitution as um, so identified. It's an effort to enforce the Constitution, but enforcing the Constitution not by saying um, Congress has explicitly violated the Constitution um, and the law is void, um, but instead to qualify, to restrict, to narrow uh, what statutes can do, to carve out exceptions in statutes um, that are not there um, in the text and that the government was not previously recognizing um, in order to say uh, we can make this statute fit within the confines of the Constitution um, uh, that's in fact is going to be enforced um, by the court as a whole. This is a common strategy the court has adopted um, over time. It was very common in the 19th century for the court um, to adopt this strategy. Um, and the consequence of adopting this strategy was not then the court was not enforcing constitutional limits against Congress, um, but enforced them in a particular kind um, of way. One result, I think, of sort of going back to the sources and actually trying to review all these cases, identify and find all these cases of judicial review, and I should note that I now have a publicly available data set of the cases that I used 
um, uh, in the book, both the cases of holding congressional statutes, but also cases in which the court um, narrowed or struck down uh, congressional statutes um, uh, given constitutional limitations. Um, that's now publicly available on uh, my uh, website. Um, but I think one thing we find when looking at this is, one, that the court um, was actively exercising the power of judicial review relative to federal laws before Marbury versus Madison was decided in 1803, um, that when John, Chief Justice John Marshall um, explained the power of judicial review, he was not um, embarking on something that was completely new and novel to the court. What he provided was a new explanation uh, for the power of judicial review. But it was not the first time the court had encountered um, litigants who were claiming that the Constitution had been violated, nor was it the first time the court had resolved the question um, of whether or not um, congressional um, uh, statutes had exceeded um, constitutional boundaries. Uh, moreover, we have a traditional story in which the court had only voided statutes in two cases prior to the Civil War, one in Marbury versus Madison in 1803, but the second in Dred Scott just before the Civil War in 1857. Um, and I think instead there are actually dozens of cases where the court was evaluating the constitutionality of federal statutes during this period, um, and quite a few cases where the court, in fact, was saying Congress had exceeded the bounds um, of its constitutional authority, and the court was going to enforce those boundaries um, against Congress over that period. Um, I think it puts Red Scott in a very different context. It puts our history of constitutional law in a very different context. The court was not acting out of the blue uh, when it was deciding a case um, in 1857 in Dred Scott. It was instead exercising the kind of authority it had been exercising for decades, um, and that litigants and parties had been encouraging it to exercise for decades, and that government officials had recognized it had been exercising um, for decades. Dred Scott was a far more politically salient case um, than was true for most of those statutes. It was a much more controversial case, and the consequences were much greater um, in that case than in other cases. But the nature of the power the court was exercising um, in Dred Scott was actually not that unusual for what the court had already been doing um, up till um, that time. Even so, even though I think there was actually more judicial review than we tend to think in the early part of the nation's history, um, it grew dramatically over time. The court became more active. Um, the cases that it tended to resolve became more politically salient and tended to be more uh, prominent. Um, the court began to regularly strike down laws um, as unconstitutional. Um, and notably, the court became more contemporaneous in how it was reviewing um, the constitutionality of statutes. It was not weighing in uh, years or even decades um, after the law had been passed the way it tended to do, actually, in the first few decades of the nation's history. Um, instead, it was reviewing laws much more quickly, um, reviewing controversies that were still um, fresh in the public mind and fresh in politics uh, more generally, and as a consequence made the court a much more significant player politically um, than it had been um, earlier in its history, um, even though I think in general still a relatively modest um, player compared to the overall political um, system uh, more generally. Finally, let me just note a point about the relationship of the court to American politics uh, more generally. There's a temptation both for... Uh, advocates of judicial power, but also sometimes for critics of judicial power to imagine the court really standing outside of American politics, um, finding some kind of locus um, where they can uh, reach into American politics and enforce the constraints of the Constitution uh, from some kind of external perspective. Um, in practice, that's never been the way the court has operated. The court has always been attached to politics, has been part of American politics. The justices reflect the dynamics of American politics uh, more generally all across, its, um, uh, all across American history. 
Um, that's not suggest that the justices are simply minions of political parties or um, extensions of the presidencies. The justices and the court um, have not been toadies um, to uh, uh, political leaders elsewhere um, in the government, um, but they do tend to share the same ideals, values, perspectives um, that other government officials and political leaders tend to share. They reflect the same kinds of debates and concerns um, that are being expressed elsewhere um, in the government. Our political parties have partially been organized around constitutional issues. Um, presidents and politicians have constitutional commitments that they articulate in public. And unsurprisingly, the judges that they put on the bench share those commitments um, in general and try to um, reflect those commitments and values in the decisions they're making on, on the court um, on the whole. That means that sometimes the court has been a player that has helped nationalize American politics. They've reflected national values, specifically against more localist um, pressures um, in the political system. And one thing they've done is helped to build up Congress as a national political actor uh, relative to um, state government officials, for example. Um, sometimes there's an ideological edge to um, uh, what the court is doing, that it reflects the kinds of commitments that are shared by one side of the political aisle uh, more so than the other side of the political aisle, and they're trying to advance um, those values and interests um, in particular ways across uh, decisions. And sometimes they really are advancing things that should be understood as primarily legal. They're advancing things that lawyers care about, that judges uniquely care about, but that other politicians in the system um, do not in general. And that's been true all through American history, that not only does the court wind up weighing in um, to politically contested cases um, in ways that seem very familiar from thinking about American politics uh, more broadly, um, but they also weigh in lots of much more technical, um, arcane kinds of uh, disputes um, in which they're concerned about legal procedures and how they work. They're concerned about legal rules and whether or not they're complied with um, in ways that politicians are sometimes much sloppier about, don't care nearly as much about, um, but the judges are concerned with trying to enforce and maintain. And as a consequence, the court has been partially a force for preserving uh, due process concerns. It's partially been a court that's concerned with protecting free speech, for example, in ways that um, elected politicians may have cared less about, um, been less committed to, less able and willing um, to defend, but the judges have been able to um, stand up for um, over time. And so while there's clearly a kind of politics surrounding the court, especially in its most salient constitutional issues, um, there's also something distinctly legal and distinctive um, about the court um, that reflects its unique role uh, within the American system and the unique contributions um, it can make to American politics uh, more generally. So thank you very much. First, let's just talk about the study itself. Sure. Um, you, you, as you said, you, uh, you, you, you uh, reviewed over 1,300 cases. The final number you give is the court upheld 963 statutes against constitutional challenge. In the other 345, the court either struck down or narrowly construed the, uh, the, the statute. Now, I suppose in some ways by looking beyond just striking down statutes yeah. and looking to narrow constructions, that opens the door to another entire sort of body of law that's been overlooked. Uh, how did you go about actually just, just the work of deciding whether a statute was narrowly construed or not? I'm just curious. So I, so I think there's certainly um, room for disagreement on the margins as to what, um, how to think about particular cases, whether you are narrowly construing the statute primarily or actually avoiding it uh, more directly. One striking thing, once you read across um, uh, these cases, especially all across American history, um, you find that the justices are not consistent about how they tr describe what it is they're doing. Um, there's not standard language they necessarily use um, in striking down 
down laws. The syllabus provided by the court reporter is not consistent in uh, reporting what it is the justices um, are doing. I mean, one weird feature of the rise of judicial review, for example, um, is that Congress does not get a regular report of, of laws that are being struck down. It's not that the court has to say, um, uh, we've struck down a law the way the president reports that he's vetoed a law. Um, and so... As a consequence, it's often very murky as to what exactly the court is doing, and the court sometimes hides the ball, I think, in what it's doing in those cases. And so what I was concerned with in identifying cases or finding instances in which um, the court is substantively trying to interpret the constitutional rules um, as it applies to the application of a federal law in the case um, at hand. Um, so are they uh, identifying and expressing um, uh, what the Constitution requires in a particular case? And are they actually applying it to the case in front of them um, as opposed to simply saying, for example, um, uh, that there are constitutional difficulties if we interpret it this way, so we're going to avoid um, uh, those difficulties. Um, instead, I'm concerned with, with instances in which the court says, no, here are the constitutional boundaries. Um, uh, we should not assume Congress has crossed those boundaries. Um, and so we're going to have to read the statute in a way that doesn't, uh, in such a way that a party loses as a consequence of how the court um, has done that. And so often that means um, that the government was not able to continue to apply the statute in a way they had been applying in the past because the court specifically says, um, if you apply it that way, it's actually going to violate the Constitution. You mentioned there's a publicly available data set. Yeah. Um, is there a website for this? People can just Google it. So, so you can find it on my um, homepage at um, Princeton uh, University. I've set up a page that specifically has this data set of um, of the judicial review data set, as well as sort of other things. I've been I've been doing more more generally. So, I do hope that um, scholars and others will find this um, useful. I spent. Um, uh, an excessive amount of time <laughs> digging out um, uh, these uh, these cases, and um, uh, I, you know, I hope that they prove to be interesting to others. Um, I mean, there are a remarkable number of cases in which I think um, the court straightforwardly did, in fact, um, render provisions of federal laws null and void um, in sort of a classic Marvers Madison style, and yet they do not appear in the Congressional Research Service um, list. So part of the additional um, cases and validations are a function of um, uh, the court and identifying boundaries and narrowing um, how to interpret laws or carving out exceptions to laws. But sometimes they're just nullifying laws, and but they've um, gone under the radar um, for what we looked at. And of course, this big bulk of cases where they've been upholding laws, uh, I think we just don't have a handle on at all. So in the book, you, you just proceed chronologically through different eras of the court. You focus first on the early republic, and you refer to that era as, as a lost history of judicial review because scholars are missing all these cases. Focusing on the pre-Civil War era, as you mentioned in your remarks, this is largely a time of the court um, advancing the project of nation-building, um, or you say facilitating the process of nation-building. You point to a famous case like Gibbons versus Ogden, uh, where the court, before it can strike down the state law that was limiting the, the, the interstate mm-hmm. uh, commerce, the, the, the um, what was it? It was a ferry, uh, yeah. a ferry traffic. Um, uh, before they could do that, they had to affirm the federal government's power in the first place. Can you just say a little bit more about that? that yeah, sometimes, it, I mean, it's, it's one of the interesting questions about how, how um, the constitutionality of congressional statutes and the limits of congressional power um, come into play in, in cases. And sometimes it's very straightforward. Somebody's challenging the application of a federal law um, to them um, and arguing that Congress has exceeded its constitutional bounds. But sometimes it comes up in these indirect ways where, um, and Gibbons is a um, classic example of it, where um, they're primarily concerned with what the state has done, um, but in the process of resolving um, that secondary issue uh, or that primary issue for them, um, they also wind up having to touch on 
um, what Congress has done. In this case, um, whether or not um, Congress has exercised an authority to license um, uh, coastal uh, tra- uh, traveling ships, and if so, what the scope of that license is, because what the scope of the um, interstate commerce power is um, under the congressional statute. The primary goal here for the court was to resolve the state issue, um, and but it, in, in doing so, it winds up expanding congressional power by upholding what uh, Congress had done in, in that particular context. Yeah. In the Civil War, the main feature of the case you study is, is the timing of cases that the court by reaching issues a little bit later, was able to reach them at a time when they were less politically salient or maybe less directly tied to the immediate interests of war and so on. But then when we get back to the post-Civil War era, the immediate aftermath of that, as you point out, the way you phrased it was striking. You said, um, surprisingly, the court became more activist only after it was stacked with Republican appointees, that the court was doing more and more after it was filled with the dominant political coalitions right. members. Could you just describe that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, part of what's, I mean, part of what's interesting about Dahl's perspective, which I think is mostly right how Robert Dahl tried to think about the court, that it's an ally to national political coalitions. But his assumption was um, that if you have justices who are basically allies to the national legislative majority, the implications were that the court would never be striking down laws because they would be reviewing um, laws of their political allies and, and from being passed by Congress, and they would just approve them um, over time. And so the court, in general, ought to be a very passive institution. Um, I think instead we find that there are all kinds of incentives for um, justices to be very active in striking down laws even when their political friends um, are in office. Um, the justices have found reasons to um, invalidate and narrow laws passed by their own coalition partners um, in Congress, not just by their political enemies in Congress. So you would expect, Dahl would have expected a Republican-dominated Supreme Court to be upholding Republican uh, legislation being passed by Congress, and they would only strike down Democratic legislation, for example, and that's just not the way the court actually has worked in practice. You uh, described yeah. it just a moment ago in terms of the incentives. Um, well, not to get you mid yeah, yeah. but but uh, what 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 uh, what sort of incentives are there that would drive Republican-appointed judges to look with particular um, uh, scrutiny at the the laws passed by their own uh, their own political coalition? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's, it's a variety of things that play out, I think, across a range of different cases. You see different elements um, uh, revealing themselves. And so in some contexts, for example, um, you find that elected politicians will deviate from their own ideological commitments. And so um, a political party might well have a set of expressed constitutional commitments, but then they find because of electoral pressures or governing pressures or other things, they wind up passing statutes that actually are in, um, in conflict with those same uh, values and beliefs that the politicians say they believe in, um, but the justices really do believe in. Um, and the justices don't have to worry about getting reelected in the same way that politicians do. They aren't worried about the same governing calculations that politicians are willing to do. And as a consequence, they're more willing to stand up for the constitutional values that even the politicians say they're committed to but don't always adhere to. It's also true that politicians are sometimes simply making compromises, um, and um, even a relatively friendly um, Congress from the court's perspective, a Republican-dominated Congress, for example, may find itself having to make compromises with dissenting factions, with Democrats that wind up including provisions and bills that are very far away from what um, Republicans would think would be acceptable generally, but it makes sense for the law-rolling purposes of Congress, but the justices become much more skeptical of it. Um, it's also true that congressmen um, just make mistakes. There's a lot of these cases 
um, often not the most politically salient cases, but cases that are more in the weeds, um, where the legal issues are just complicated um, and Congress um, wasn't paying close attention um, or um, got things wrong, at least from the court's perspective. Um, and part of what the court is doing is cleaning up details um, in, the, in those kinds of cases rather than sort of uh, running directly against sort of uh, important priority policies that, that Congress is trying to pursue. That's interesting. Sometimes, I mean, I think more generally, at least in this day and age, we think of the justices changing or the, ju- the justices changing once they've joined yeah. the court. Have there are certain incentives that move them in a certain direction. For years, we referred to the greenhouse effect right. for the Linda Greenhouse and the media's impact on, on Supreme Court justices, either actual or yeah. perceived. You're saying that sometimes it's the justice that stays in one position and the par- it's not that he left the party, but the party left him, so to speak. Um, but sometimes the judges do actually evolve. No, sure. Certainly there's going to be cases where the judges evolve over time. I didn't specifically try to look at sort of where there's something similar to what we might imagine the greenhouse effect all through American um, history. You know, one thing that's striking, and, one, and I tend to focus more on the book and thinking about the court as a whole rather than individual justices, and one thing that's, that's striking when you look at this across all of American history um, is that the court since the early part of the 20th century um, has been characterized by individual opinions. So lots of justices are writing individual opinions, they're dissenting, they're concurring, um, there's disagreements um, on the court. Especially though in this context of reviewing constitutionality of federal laws, um, through most of American history, those disagreements were kept um, uh, hidden from public view. The justices uh, would issue um, decisions without um, uh, published dissents, um, although uh, sometimes they would note there was a dissent. Published dissents were relatively rare, um, uh, even though there, we know in some cases there were uh, dissenting views being expressed in conference um, privately among the justices. For example, the justices tend to maintain much more of a public face. So as a consequence, if you focus more on what individual judges are doing over that time, it, there's a lot less uh, movement and a lot less indication of what individual judges are doing um, through much of American history than there is more recently, where we tend to focus much more on well, in every case, every judge feels like they have to write their own opinion, um, and so you can trace in a lot of detail what they're, what they're doing specifically through much of American history. That just wasn't true. Let me just a couple, ask a couple more questions about the, the classic eras of the court's history and then some big-picture questions. So when you move from the post-war era to the Lochner era, an era that's generally thought of as a time in which right. the Supreme Court with conservative or libertarian justices was pushing back energetically and uniformly against progressive legislation in the states, you say that actually the data suggests that it was much more complicated than that. As you put it, the court interposed itself not into stark majoritarian environments where you're just reliably striking down the laws that were being passed in states, but you said these are much more complicated political environments where the political dynamic wasn't so cut and dry. Yeah. Yeah, the populists and progressives, I think, had a big stake in, both an ideological stake but also a political stake, in trying to portray what the court was doing was resisting the will of popular majorities. And so they wanted to pitch the idea um, that the people really want whatever it is the particular legislation is, their policies that the populists and progressives want, and the courts are just rejecting that. Um, in fact, the populists and progressives... Mo- often lost elections. Um, so they didn't actually uh, win the elections and didn't uh, gain the support of the American people more generally. And so partially uh, when the court is striking things down, they're not resisting sort of obvious um, uh, movements among the American people as a whole to support that legislation. Um, partially it's the case that the, um, even the majority party is wind up making these um, uh, complex pieces of legislation that reflect a, 
a mix of different policy priorities that the court is intervening in um, in these instances, and often intervening in ways that are in alignment um, with what a majority of the uh, political coalition would tend to think, um, but is out of alignment with some specific minorities. It's also true, I think, that the story of, of how the Supreme Court relates to the states during this period is a little different than how the Supreme Court relates to right. Congress during this period. Um, but it is striking, given our sort of um, uh, view of the Lochner period as being a, a period of intense activism by a conservative court um, against um, progressive legislatures. Um, in the context of uh, reviewing acts of Congress, uh, what that conservative court is mostly doing is upholding acts of Congress and, and authorizing the administrative state. Um, the, the national state is growing dramatically during this period. Lots of creativity as to what policies and institutions look like. Um, and the court is overwhelmingly approving of those things. Um, so every once in a while, they strike something down. Um, but for the most part, they are rubber stamping what it is Congress is doing, um, even though what Congress is doing is uh, radically new um, compared to uh, what the federal government looked like 20, 30, 40 years before. And when we look just a few decades later in the New Deal era, yeah. the classic story is that a conservative Supreme Court was pushing back against FDR and the New Dealers until the moment in which the court saw itself as politically threatened, and so the so-called switch in time that saves nine, the court moves into a much more relaxed and deferential posture. Right. But you say, actually, even in that era, when the court was pushing back against laws, it was primarily not pushing back against the most recent New Deal enactments. You say they were pecking away at older, less politically salient laws and less central legislative provisions. Um, and yeah. this is part of a broader theme here that, uh, you, you, in contrast to sort of Alexander Bickel and the idea of a counter-majoritarian difficulty, you say oftentimes the court is receiving these cases, or these no. cases challenging statutes, long after the statute was passed. So the political coalition at the time of judicial review is much different. It's no longer um, counter-majoritarian at, at all when it's striking down a statute. Yeah, no, I think that's right across the court's history as a whole. I mean, one thing that's is striking about the New Deal period, and, and really when we think of the New Deal period, we're thinking of a very small window um, of basically 1934 to 1937, so really three or four years um, uh, during uh, Roosevelt's first term, um, for the most part, um, where the court is being very aggressive. It is striking down uh, an unusually large number of laws, and those are laws that are unusually important um, and unusually recent. Um, but the court's um, activity sort of surrounding that um, uh, tends not to look like that. And so um, one thing I was really struck by was the extent to which the New Deal um, is idiosyncratic, that, that sort of brief conflict between Congress and the court of the FDR administration um, and the court does stand out as being um, a, a, a different moment of how the court relates itself to Congress um, than is true through much of its um, history, including how, for example, the relatively conservative Taft Court had been behaving all through the 1920s, uh, where they were striking down a very large number of laws, historically speaking, um, but it often did involve relatively minor laws. It was older laws um, and the like. Um, the New Deal jumps out at you as being a moment in which for a few years there the court was doing something very unusual. And I think it's telling that, that the court cannot sustain that, um, that uh, the political branches push back um, during this period. Um, 
you mentioned the Civil War earlier, for example. Civil War is, is reflective of how the court often has behaved during wars, but it was particularly true during the Civil War. Um, the court has this long window where they're not striking down anything at all. Um, and, and that tends to be true a lot of wartime uh, periods where the court is avoiding wartime cases. They're not striking down uh, wartime measures. They might weigh in after the war's over and say some of that stuff was not well done and then certainly now it needs to be cleaned up. Um, but while the war is on, uh, the court tends to uh, take a back seat. Um, so the Great Depression as a national crisis or comparable to war in some ways um, is distinctive where the court is just waiting in right in the midst of the crisis, um, telling Congress it can't do things, um, and Congress really does push back. Yeah, and not just in times of war, but sometimes in times of peace, yep. the court is doing less. You, you close by pointing out that since the turn of the 21st, since the 21st century began, the court is now striking down uh, yeah. federal statutes at a historically low yeah. pace. And I think also state laws, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, yeah. You know, that it's well, let me just ask a couple of big-picture questions then. One of the most striking lines in the entire book, as you're sort of framing all of this, is this point about the court reinforcing federal power. But the way you, you phrase it is, is very interesting. You say, an important aspect of the court's work in exercising judicial review has been in upholding laws against constitutional challenge. The court's ongoing effort to silence critics of congressional power is a crucial part of how the court advances a common project of governance with its allies in the elected branches. Now, when you say the silence critics, you don't literally mean you know, <laughs> yeah, you're right. saying stop arguing Throwing about this. Jail. Right. But the fact is that it's not so much that they're silencing the critics, but that when the court decides these cases, critics often fall silent and, 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 um, and step away from the controversy. Of course, that's not always the case. We just a few weeks ago right. marked the anniversary of, of Roe versus Wade, mm-hmm. and there are certain touchstone cases that certainly didn't silence right. uh, critics. But that's right that over that on the whole, the Supreme Court's word tends to be taken as final and authoritative, even by advocates of a of a position. Yeah, I think I think it's right that the, that that's, um, that does often have the effect of of at least reducing um, the amount of criticism of of given laws. Um, but, um, but there's an interesting sort of uh, conceptual question as to why does the court um, uphold so many laws it does, right? So as I noted, the three-quarters of these cases involve the court upholding statutes. Um, there's an interesting question, why bother doing those cases? And, of course, through much of the 19th century, the court has mandatory, ju- mandatory right. jurisdiction. Cases are coming to them. They have to resolve them, um, and so they don't have a choice about necessarily avoiding um, those cases. Through much of the 20th century, on the other hand, they have discretionary um, uh, jurisdiction. Not entirely true for all of these specific um, kinds of cases that involve constitutionality of federal, client, uh, federal um, statutes, but for a lot of these. And yet, even cases they're taking on a voluntary basis, um, they're still upholding um, uh, laws and raises questions about, well, what are they doing when they're doing that? Um, and I think part of the point of the court for taking those cases is precisely to try to instruct um, the lower courts in particular, but also often those who are off um, the outside the judiciary um, about what the constitutional rules are, what the constitutional standards are from the Supreme Court's perspective, and why it is these cases are actually fine, this, these um, laws are actually um, constitutional, and so as a consequence to discourage state judges and lower court federal judges from continuing to um, attack those um, uh, those those laws. Um, one thing that was striking about the late Roberts Court, or the Roberts Court um, uh, until relatively recently, um, is they have not taken those kind of cases. So the Roberts Court sort of changed this historic pattern in that they really have dropped cases um, in which they are simply going to 
um, uphold the constitutionality of the federal law um, that has also been upheld in the lower federal courts. So the, the Roberts Court instead has focused its attention when it takes these cases on cases in which it actually wants to invalidate um, uh, the federal law. Um, and that's not generally been true about the court, but it seems to be true recently. Well, since it only takes four justices out of yeah. the nine to grant cert, it might also be the case that oftentimes not only with the justices themselves, the four who grant cert, they might not know where the fifth vote is. They probably have a guess. And they might not themselves know whether they're the fifth vote, too. It's not that the court always knows when it grants a case how it's going to decide a case, although, of course, often... They grant the case precisely because they, they probably think the lower court was wrong. No, I think that's right. There's certainly some instances in which there's likely to be some uncertainty among the justices as to how the case is likely to come out. Um, I don't think that can account for the bulk of the cases. I have a law review article that I did with a former student of mine, um, um, Ben Johnson, who's now at um, Penn State, who um, uh, has some particular expertise in looking at um, cert grants and has done a lot of work on um, the c- construction of the court's um, docket where we try to unpack some of these uh, different effects um, in these particular contexts um, of, of uh, the exercise of judicial review. So I, I do think the courts are not knowing for sure what's going to happen with the case when they're putting it on the docket as part of what's going on, um, but it doesn't seem to be the whole story. Now, you quoted Justice, uh, Justice Joseph Story and his view of judicial review as you described it, though, it brought to my mind just maybe the most famous description of judicial review, which is Hamilton in Federal mm-hmm. 78. Um, lawyers uh, and judges are all familiar with the more famous lines of exercising neither, the court exercises neither force nor will, but merely judgment. The court, when it finds a law that's unconstitutional, has to, we often say, strike down or nullify. Well, that's sometimes tendentious. Right. But they have to give effect to the higher law of the Constitution, not the lower law. Right. Um, but elsewhere in Federal 78, Hamilton sketches out a fairly deferential view of judicial review. When he's uh, analogizing it to a contractual dispute or other things, yeah. he says, if there's a higher law and a lower law and they seem to be in conflict, um, the court, as long as there's a fair construction of the, st- of the statute that would allow it to withstand sort of constitutional yep. scrutiny, then logic dictates that you must give it that construction and right. let them both stand. Right. Um, elsewhere, he says... The court will strike down statutes that are at an irreconcilable variance with the Constitution. But that term, irreconcilable variance, suggests that there's such a thing as a reconcilable right. variance. Right. And so while we, Federal 78 you know, argues for judicial review, it argues for a particular kind of yeah. judicial review that's more relaxed. Right. And, look, and I think, if anything, your book suggests that over the arc of history, the Supreme Court has largely followed that approach, for better or for worse. I think that's right. I think the court has generally tended to follow that approach. Um, uh, and one interesting question is sort of what's the significance of the court doing judicial review in that mode yeah. uh, rather than simply um, striking out um, provisions. Um, I think sometimes um, uh, sometimes this is a function of how statutes are worded, right, and right. so or, or how particular statutory provisions are worded, uh, where it's easier to imagine uh, we can just strike out this particular provision um, uh, because of its conflict um, and leave the rest of the things in place, uh, whereas in other contexts, what the court effectively winds up doing is carving out exceptions to a provision where it's not very easy to imagine you could just strike this particular language and accomplish uh, what the court um, thought constitutionally needed to be accomplished um, in those particular instances. 
they all have the consequence of enforcing limits on congressional power. Everybody recognizes when, when the court has done that, um, that the court has now marked out a boundary that you can't cross, and as a consequence, um, new statutes can't be written that cross those boundaries, new cases can't be brought that's going to apply law um, that's going to cross those uh, boundaries. Um, but it may be a way in which the court is uh, minimizing the direct conflict with um, Congress, that it's a more subtle move. It's a much less um, public uh, slap in the face of Congress um, as a consequence of that. And, and as a consequence, I think that we as scholars have tended to overlook those cases and not emphasize them as much. I think they've also gotten less public attention and less congressional attention um, than cases where the court has simply said that's null and void and, it's void, and we're going to strike it down um, in its entirety. I mean, here's a current example. In a few days, the Supreme Court's going to hear oral arguments in a case involving a constitutional challenge to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It has a particular structure that yeah. gives it a measure of independence from the, from the president. Um, I, I'll say in, in my, I'm no fan of the statute. In my right. past life as a lawyer, I was involved in some of the constitutional challenges against it. Um, now that the court has actually granted the case, looking at it, I wonder if, there, if they might not avoid a constitutional issue here. Ever since these debates over the agency, independent agencies started in 1935, um, or a little bit before that, uh, the court has said uh, that it's okay for Congress to, to insulate some agencies from direct presidential right. removal. Um, FDR tried to fire the FTC commissioner, and the court said it's okay for the statute to prevent the president from firing him at will. But these statutes that limit the president's removal power, they've never said expressly, explicitly uh, the president can't fire these people over policy differences. Right. And the court has never said that these statutes forbid that kind of thing. The Supreme Court said in a recent case, they think that's the better reading. but They've never actually held it. Mm -hmm. And so if the court's going to strike down the, this aspect of Dodd-Frank, they might have to first decide, well, what does this removal protection mean? Right. Is a president blocked from firing the CFPB director over policy disagreement? And if the court construes this, these, all these statutes as saying, well, no, actually, you can fire a CFPB director or an FTC commissioner, or um, right. a, on and on, over policy disagreements, right. it leaves a statute intact, yep. but it certainly recharacterizes yep. the statutes in a way that vindicates presidential power and congressional power. No, there's no question about that. And it's, it's, and, and it's one thing I think this, these kinds of histories should emphasize is that there's a range of tools the courts have um, about how they address laws, and they have a range of consequences. And so um, I limited myself to thinking about cases in which the court was explicit in, in identifying a constitutional boundary um, and then trying to enforce that constitutional boundary and saying that the um, Congress can't cross it, uh, at least as applied in, in the case in front of them. Um, but, but you can easily imagine a lot of those exact same cases occurring which the court just never included language about what yeah. the constitutional limit was. They just did the statutory interpretation part. Um, and it may be in the background they were thinking about there are constitutional problems here um, that we're going to try to avoid. But they don't talk about that in the case, for example. I think there probably are a lot of cases that look like that. I think they're hard to identify. It's hard to know what's motivating the justices than when they're engaged in particularly uh, creative statutory interpretation in that light. I do think one consequence of doing it that way, as opposed to um, the cases I am focused on in the book, is um, that you do not then clearly articulate what the constitutional limit is, right? right? So if you right. keep that completely implicit and all you do is interpret the statute uh, in a particular way, um, you're still leaving the door open then um, that sometime down the road you're going to have to deal with the constitutional issue or that Congress might continue 
to overreach right. from the justice perspective and continue passing new statutes that might go too far. Um, so one virtue of this strategy of saying we're going to creatively interpret the statute so as not to run up against this hard constitutional rule is you are clearly stating what the constitutional rule is yes. um, and sending signals to people about um, that the rule exists and that we're going to enforce it and recognize it. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.